Welcome everyone to the Football Odyssey Podcast. This is Aaron Harris, and today's episode will be an interview with Shane Richmond. Shane is the founder of Pigskin Books, a website where football fans can discover a wide variety of vintage and contemporary football books about a multitude of topics, ranging from the history of specific teams, playing strategies, the business of pro football, and much more. Shane and I discuss his roots as an American football fan growing up in the United Kingdom, the background behind pigskin books, and some of our favorite football reads. I posted a link to Shane's website in the description, so after the podcast, check it out and get some great recommendations for your own football library. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, then please subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Football Odyssey, and reach out to me in the contact section of thefootballodyssey.com. And, as always, thank you for listening. I started reading uh, pigskin books probably about a year and a half ago, and I've gotten some great recommendations. And I think it's great that we have a website that's dedicated to giving reviews to football books, especially vintage football books. Uh, So can you start by telling the audience how and when you were first introduced to the game of football? Sure. So as somebody who grew up in the UK, I got interested in the NFL in the mid-1980s. And um, it's common. I'm in my mid-40s now, and it's pretty common for people of my age to have got into the sport then. Uh, Americans find it kind of weird, but uh, in the early 80s in the UK, we had three TV channels. Um, And in about 1982, we got our fourth TV channel called Channel 4. Um, And their remit was to provide an alternative to what was available on the other channels, and that included with sport. So they started showing the NFL. And when I was about 10 or 11 on a Sunday evening, we had two channels showing religious programming, one channel that would be showing some very grown-up, serious documentary. And then on Channel 4, you had the NFL, which was this incredibly colorful and exciting sport that I'd never seen anything like it before, basically. Um, so it was the uh, it was the 85 season when I, when I got into watching the game and uh, the, the year the Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl, um, which gave me a love of defensive football, which I still really enjoy to this day. And I kind of followed it from there on, really. So we started with this weird being, we we would get the NFL on a Sunday night, but we were actually seeing the highlights of the previous week's games. So we were constantly a week behind what was happening in the US, Um, which meant that if once you started following the sport and you wanted to see uh, who had won that week, it was actually very difficult to keep up to date. So you either had to listen to the Armed Forces Radio Network, which was broadcast for um, U.S. service personnel here in, in Europe, um, or you had to wait until Tuesday when the newspapers would carry the results of the games. So it was kind of a it was a weird process at first and certainly a long way from, from where we are today where you can see everything uh, live as it happens. Now, were the highlights that you were watching, were they produced by NFL Films or was it kind of the networks that cut together a package and that's what you saw? It was stuff that they got from the networks and the the Channel 4 would then edit it themselves. So they would take the, the game footage and edit that down. Either 
the same kind of stuff that you guys would see in, in halftime on Monday Night Football or something, or slightly extended highlights. So usually we'd get one or two games where they'd show you more extended highlights of, of what was happening. Uh, and then eventually they moved on to showing a little bit of a live game. Um, but because of the time it was on, they would they would show you a live game and then stop before it would finish. So it's just, you know, that's all we've got time for now. So that game's still in progress and you'll find out next week how it turned out. It was a very sort of ramshackle way of doing things at first. And when you started watching, was this something that your friends had also taken to or did you find other fans in the UK at the same time? Or was this something that for a while was really unique to you? It was something that quite a lot of kids of my age were getting into. So I found um, fairly early on that there were other kids at school who were also interested in in watching the game and had been watching it too. And it was still a pretty small group of us. I'd say there were sort of half a dozen kids in my school year who were all into the NFL. And it was it was very different from how it is now, where since they've been playing the games in London, a younger generation has got into the sport here and they're very open to, to a new and exciting sport. The UK, I think, was much more insular in the 80s. So the kids who were really into soccer were very dismissive of the NFL. Um, and it was just seen as kind of, well, it's it's like rugby, but they wear all these pads for some reason because <laughs> they don't like taking the hits. Or well, what's wrong with these people? Um, so you kind of... It was a very sort of oppositional thing. If you were into the NFL here in the UK in the 80s, you would find a lot of people who were very anti-NFL, this new sport that had kind of shown up. And what was it about the game that drew you to it? I know you mentioned that's when you grew to have a passion for defensive football, uh, but everybody has a different attraction to the game. Some people it's the physical nature, some people it's more cerebral. What was it for you that really drew you to the game of football and maybe some other friends in your circle that were interested as well? I think the thing that really clinched it for me was the realization that there are there are kind of two games going on at the same time. There's the physical confrontation on the field where you have these elite athletes who are doing incredible things that, that, that most human beings can't do. But you also have this strategic aspect on top of it uh, with these two coaches trying to outwit one another. And And it was that that really grabbed my imagination, I think, the fact that it's you know, growing up here with soccer, which is a much more free-flowing game, and obviously there is strategy and tactics involved, but it, it it things kind of ebb and flow, and you don't have that opportunity to kind of pause and think about how to change your, your tactical approach. It was that bit that really captured my imagination, I think, the fact that you were sitting there and going, okay, well, what have we just done and what worked, and how can we try and exploit um, what, what we can see the other guys trying to do? So that was the fascinating thing, I think. And then the other thing that, that grabbed me and my friends generally was simply uh, the, the newness of it. You know, it's at that age when you're sort of 11 or 12 and something new comes along that's different to what you've seen before. You, you kind of want to learn about it, I think. But, but yeah, the strategy has always been the thing that's grabbed me. Yeah, and it seems the stop-and-go nature of the sport is something that can either really interest people or can really uh, dispersuade people from getting into the sport. Because I've known a few people who were big soccer players growing up, and they just can't get into football because they don't like how it's stop-and-go, stop-and-go. They like something that's more free-flowing. Whereas with other people, they're more, they take it to it more kindly, and they, they kind of enjoy that 
that cerebral element to the point where everything is really structured within the sport and it's not as free flowing as soccer or you know basketball or lacrosse. Yeah, that's right. And I know today, again, when you talk to people today, they're much more open to the idea of of a new and different sport. And so talk to you about it who are not necessarily NFL fans will often say, yeah, I'm interested, but it just seems too slow because there's this stopping and starting. And I find that once once people understand what's going on in that process, then the gaps for a start begin to seem kind of smaller because you're thinking along the same lines as everybody else is thinking. You're thinking who's coming into the game, who's going out, what are they going to try and do this time? Um, but also you have that sense of understanding the rhythm a little bit better, which is with any new sport, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on. And, you know, soccer, and I'm a, a soccer fan as well, but soccer has the, the problem of long periods where nothing much seems to be happening. And that can be something for fans who are used to sports where there's more constant action. They can find that quite hard to, to deal with. And the same thing applies there, that once you understand what's going on, it becomes more absorbing because you start to see patterns and things that 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 a, new, a novice to the game wouldn't see necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And did you learn the game just from watching it on television, or did you have uh, programs in the UK that kind of broke down the way the game was played, or did you have magazines that kind of uh, did that as well? So the the TV shows would would kind of explain the basics. So that was the. The first objective to get over was just understanding the down system and the general principles of of how you move the ball and the different ways of scoring. Um, but there were there were books that came out annually. So there was a sort of NFL annual that was published here in the UK that I know lots of people my age would would get every Christmas, and that would kind of give you some basics of what was going on in the game and also round up the previous year and, you know, tell you a little bit about some of the stars from previous generations and so on. So you'd fill in a little bit of the history. Um, But media wise, we were quite well served, actually. I think at one point we had three or four monthly magazines that came out here uh, and a weekly magazine as well called First Down, which would come out on a Thursday. Uh, So you would to read the, the game reports from the Sunday, you would have to wait until Thursday's first down arrived that's when you would know what had happened and and who'd won and who'd lost and so on so it was a process of gradually learning through that and then because i was so interested in all of the little details i started getting the record and fact book every year as well Mm. which had which had the rules in the back of it and all the various little um strange things around you know how fumbles on punts are handled or, or whatever so the obscure rules that would never be explained in a tv broadcast um but it's still it was a, a slow process of accumulating knowledge kind of year on year i think yeah and the re- the fact and records book is one way to really impress people with how much you know because if you can really define the rules which is so hard for people to understand if you're not passionate about the game i mean that will really give you the nuts and bolts of every single situation in football it's true, and it was helpful to have that. And also, I managed to uh, – I impressed my geography teacher once by knowing the word impetus in a uh, in a lesson, which came purely from having read the NFL record and fact book, which was explaining how you determine where uh, – I think it was where a tackle has stopped. It's when the forward impetus has ceased. So I was like, ah, oh, that's an interesting new word. Um, so it came in handy for that as well. Nice. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that, you never know where it can come in handy in other areas of life, right? It's true. It's true. 
Now, if how do you describe the the current culture of American football in the UK? Is it still viewed by and large as uh, a novelty, or are people starting to really gain more interest in uh, the sport itself and the business and everything that goes on in the NFL? Or do you think it's somewhere in between? It's it's worlds away from where I was where it was when I was a kid. So the the huge thing that changed was when we started getting the the international series games being played here so when actual competitive games because we had you know in the in the 80s we had exhibition games played here so the american ball i went and saw dan marino's dolphins take on joe montana's 49ers in london which was great but it was an exhibition game and so you knew it didn't you know it didn't really matter uh, and those you know, the big stars only played for a quarter but from 2007 when they actually brought over teams for competitive games it started to be a much bigger deal so the bbc started showing those games as well um, mostly the nfl here is on sky sports which is a um, uh, satellite or cable channel and it's it's pretty widely subscribed to because they have the Premier League as well. So a lot of people have it, but it's not in every household by any means. The BBC obviously is, you know, everyone has BBC TV. So when they started showing the games, it then attracts the attention of lots of people who are otherwise not going to go and seek it out. So um, I think the the classic example is um, uh, Luminor, whose first name I can't remember, but... Um, uh, was drafted by by the Ravens a few years ago uh, on the offensive line, and he grew up here in Britain. Uh, his first exposure to the NFL was watching uh, the 2007 game between the Dolphins and the Giants, and he persuaded his dad to let him go to college in the States because he wanted to play that sport uh, and ended up being drafted by the Ravens and then moving on to the Patriots. I don't know if he's, if I don't know if he's still in the league, but you know, he's a guy, a British guy who ended up playing in the NFL purely because he saw one of the London games on TV. And I think that shows just how far we've come since the eighties. And you can now, most people who are into sport, will now have an awareness of the NFL, even if it's not a sport that they personally like or follow, um, they will be able to talk about it. Whereas back in the 80s, it was it was very, very niche. So it's it's grown massively. It's still it's still a minority thing, but it's grown massively from where it was. And when you were growing up, who were some of the the players that were really popular in the UK? So Dan Marino was massively popular. Um, and actually, when they came over for the American Bowl, Dan Marino was on one of the um, live nighttime chat shows, kind of like the Tonight Show or whatever mm -hmm. equivalent here. So I remember him being on television and the host asking him whether practicing for an NFL game entailed just putting the pads and the helmet on and running into a wall. <laughs> that was the that was the that was the level of understanding of of how the game worked. Um, but he came over and he was a big star. Um, William Perry, the refrigerator, was a, a a huge star, captured loads of people's imaginations. That that Chicago Bears team in general, I think, in the same way that they captured the imaginations of people in the states, they had that personality that made them appealing over here. Uh, the 49ers obviously were really successful throughout that era. So Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, those guys were, were stars here too. Um, essentially, I think for a while, there were, there were lots of Dolphins fans here, lots of Cowboys fans here, and then basically whoever had won the most recent Super Bowl had an absolute ton of fans. So people who were getting on board with it would would follow the most recent Super Bowl team. So there are still 
lots of Bears fans here in the UK who became fans of the team through through that um, that Chicago Bears team in in '85, and the same with fans of the. There's lots of fans of the Washington football team, as we must now call them. Um, but you even have, I mean, the the Bengals, for example, have a huge following over here, uh, and it's largely down to that that period in the '80s where they made a couple of Super Bowls and they were a pretty strong team. Um, same with the Browns. You know, the Browns in the '80s had a run of. Like, couple of championship games almost making it to a super bowl picked up quite a lot of fans over here who are still followers of the team but obviously not a lot of success has come their way since yeah i, I imagine at least for cincinnati that there's probably more fans in the uk than there are here yes <laughs> it's, it's certainly possible i mean they have they have a phenomenal fan base over here i mean the, the fan base on twitter uh, is really big they have a weekly podcast and they've had the head coach on and big players on and stuff. I mean, it's like it's it's they genuinely have a really great community here. And particularly when you consider the fact that, you know, they haven't when did they last make the playoffs? 25 years ago, something like that. I mean, you know, they haven't had a lot to celebrate. And those guys are still still following the team week in, week out, which is pretty impressive. What about the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Are they a popular team over there? Um, the, because I, mean, I, rem- have- I remember watching, I think it was the NFL Network or ESPN short documentary about uh, the Tampa Bay Bucks following in the UK. And they had, uh, this was before podcasts were really popular, but they had like a weekly magazine or a newsletter they would send out. They had a massive fan club. So I was always wondering if that was a team that was really popular and why, and why it was that way. They And they have a fan base, but, but all of the teams have a fan base at, at this point. Um I know that the Buccaneers fan base has been around since the 80s and they did because Florida is a popular holiday destination for people here in the UK. The Florida teams have had a bit of a following. So people would go out there and they've had this relationship. I think they have quite a good relationship with the team, actually. They've built up over quite a long time. Um, Obviously, the fact that it's owned by the Glazer family, who also own Manchester United here, so there's kind of a link. But actually, Manchester United fans really dislike the Glazers. So that hasn't helped to... uh, that hasn't helped to endear them to UK fans. But no, they're not. I mean, there is a fan base, but they're not especially notable. I would say the big ones, the Patriots, for obvious reasons, that's built up over the last few years. The Bengals, really big. Um, the Packers have a huge fan base in, in the UK and Ireland. Um, and the Jags have get a lot of attention because they effectively have an official arm over here. You know, the, the UK Jags. Twitter account is an official account. Uh, they're the only one, so they have they've been able to draw that attention. And again, uh, as with Tampa Bay and the Glazers, they're they're owned by a guy who also owns one of the big soccer teams here. So that brings that connection in. Now, have you been to any of the international games since two thousand seven? I've been to all of them except one. Wow! So uh, there was. There was one, and it's now it's the only one I haven't been to. I feel kind of annoyed that I didn't go to it, but it was uh, it was the 49ers against the um, who were they playing? Oh, it was the it was was it 49ers Patriots? I think it was 49ers Patriots, and um, yeah, I might be misrem- misremembering. It was the Patriots what? playing somebody, and it was it was going to be absolutely one sided. The Patriots winning easily. Was it I the Rams? It could have been. Could have. Yeah, it might have been that one. Yeah, and so it was one that I looked at and thought, 
I don't need to see that. It's going to be a very boring, uh, very boring, easy win. So I, yeah, I've been to all of them except that one, whichever one that was. And what's the atmosphere like? Because everybody, because personally, I love watching it because that means we get football about nine o'clock in the morning over here. Mm-hmm. And whenever I watch the games, you see everybody that has a different uh, jersey, and everybody comes and. I, I see a lot of people get really excited into the game and some other people I think may not be totally certain what's going on, but they look like they're having you know a grand old time. So can you kind of describe the atmosphere of what it's like to go to uh, one of those games? Sure. I mean, it's, it's nowhere near the atmosphere of an NFL game in the States. So it's, it's, it's not as intense. It starts off pretty noisy because everyone's there and excited. Um, if the game is a competitive one then the atmosphere will kind of keep going longer um we've had a few where you know one team is clearly in the lead at half time and then it goes quite flat um other than that it's very dependent on the fan bases of the teams who are playing so when the bills played here for example the bills fans were amazing they made loads of noise and kept the atmosphere going throughout uh, same with the chiefs and the seahawks those were the other fan bases that really stand out as being noisy and excited throughout and obviously all three fan bases have a reputation in the states as being pretty pretty hardcore um so i think a lot of fans had come over for those games and kept the atmosphere going and that that in turn fed into the excitement of the uk fans but otherwise what tends to happen is because as you say, everyone there is really there representing their team. So most people don't have a particular stake on, in, in the outcome of the game. And so the, the atmosphere tends to go a bit flat later on, which is, is not what happens when you get to an NFL game in the States. I mean, that said, I've been to games in, in, in Jacksonville that haven't had a huge amount of atmosphere either. So, uh, you know, Wembley can be, Wembley's fairly competitive. Uh, so you just mentioned that you've been to games in Jacksonville. Have you been to any other games in the U.S.? Yeah, so I'm a Ravens fan, and I've been to a whole bunch of games in Baltimore. Um, in uh, in 2013, I came out and went to five five in a row. Uh, so I did four in Baltimore, and then flew to Chicago, met up with a friend there who was a Bears fan, and we went to watch the Bears game. So I've been to... Um, I've been to Washington, I've been to Baltimore, I've been to Jacksonville because my wife's grandparents live near there, and I've been to Chicago. So four four NFL cities. What game stands out the most to you? Uh, I think definitely the that 2013 Thanksgiving game. I went to Thanksgiving night, Steelers versus Ravens, and it was, I mean, obviously it's a huge rivalry anyway, so the atmosphere was incredible. Uh, but that was also the night where... <laughs> During a Jacoby Jones kick return, mm-hmm. Mike, Tomlin, Mike Tomlin stepped on the field, um, which is obviously memorably weird, but that set off an, just a huge atmosphere in the stadium. You know, the, the replay guys spotted that and just kept showing it throughout the rest of the game, which just sparked off the crowd, which is so that was great. The one in Chicago, we, um, we got hit by a passing hurricane, so that uh, a tornado, sorry. So that, that was memorable, but mainly because we got absolutely drenched. I'm actually a Steeler fan, so I remember that game very well. Because uh, okay. everybody everybody had a good time with the memes afterwards and making it look like a dance move and everything like that. Funny. But it was yeah, that was a strange that was a strange chapter. And that's a rivalry too, that's always great because I was actually rewatching the uh Christmas game from I think it was two thousand sixteen with the mm-hmm. uh the Immaculate Extension. 
And yeah. the and the commentators start off right before the kickoff saying, you know, these teams only had two wins each. It would still have this kind of atmosphere. And it's true because, you know, when you look at the history, I mean, a lot of the history between the two teams is because usually there's a lot on the line, usually the AFC North. But you can tell, you know, this is just a rivalry that runs deep. So those games, you know, you wish you could watch almost every week. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a respect there as well, which is which is something that really makes one of those rivalries work. I think the you either have to have two teams that really can't stand each other and don't respect each other at all, or two teams that really respect each other and want to come out the, as the best. Uh, so we have... Um, my my daughter used to have a classmate whose uh, whose dad is a Steelers fan, so we would mm-hmm. go over there. And I've got whenever I go over there, I take over Ravens flags for the kids, which they <laughs> torment him with for a few weeks until until the flags mysteriously disappear. <laughs> I remember uh, I I went to Pittsburgh. I think it was in 2012 when they were playing the Ravens, and I think the week before Roethlisberger had gotten hurt, so it was Byron Leftwich, mm-hmm. and the game was still closed out of the very wire. I think Baltimore ended up winning 13 to 10. Uh, but you just knew from the very beginning that it was going to be, no matter who was in the game, it was going to be a hard contested uh, fight. And it is true how there's a lot of respect between uh, Baltimore and Pittsburgh, because I think when you're talking about, you know, teams that just want to go out and hurt each other, you know, you'll think of, you know, the Steelers and the Bengals, let's mm. say. Uh, but yeah, well, when you play Baltimore, there's a lot of respect there. So it's definitely a great uh, rivalry. And, you know, both teams now look like they're going to get some hot streaks going. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out down the road. I think it will be. And they're both well-run organizations, which I think makes a difference. You know, it's it's hard to stay competitive in the NFL for as long as they have. You've had so many teams over the last 20 years or so who have a couple of seasons of being really good and then just fall away again. But but throughout that, the Ravens and the Bengals have managed, the Ravens and the Steelers have managed to stay competitive in a way that an organization like the Bengals just doesn't. You know, they just, I feel, you know, I feel sorry for Bengals fans because they do seem to have an ownership that really is kind of just happy to take the money that comes with the team. They don't seem to want to actually turn it around and compete. Maybe that's going to change if Burrow settles in, but we'll see. Yeah, it'll definitely take a few years. Uh, they'll definitely need, you know, a little bit more uh, offensive firepower for them. Mm. But, but you know, it, it's interesting to see where the AFC North is headed because, you know, you have some really great uh, running attacks, rushing attacks right now in the league, and then you've got a lot of young quarterbacks. You know, what what's going to happen with Pittsburgh after Ben remains to be seen. But you know, as of right now, it's a very promising division. Oh, it's a it's a really tough division, and you look at some of the others around the league. You know, the NFC East obviously is is a mess this year, but mm-hmm. but the AFC North looks like it has three very strong teams and a team in the Bengals that are certainly on the rise. So it's yeah. it's going to be a really competitive division for a while, I think. Now, who is your favorite player from the Ravens? Uh, Ed Reed. Ed Reed. Just, yeah, I mean, I think just the way that. You really never knew what was going to happen when you were watching him, and I just, I just love that ability and that ability to read the game too. I don't know if you've seen um, that. It was, it was something that uh, Belichick brought up in the uh, NFL 100 stuff last year when they did mm-hmm. the all-time team, and he pointed out that <laughs> that great interception that Reed got against um, uh, against Peyton Manning, uh, and I was there. I was at that game actually. Um, and apparently Reed had been 
deliberately playing a particular coverage wrong for weeks leading up to this game. He'd been kind of running away from this pass route that he knew that, that Manning liked. Uh, and so in that game, you'll see as, as um, the play unfolds, Reed starts to run away from where the ball is going to go. And then without even looking at what Manning is doing, he turns around and sprints towards I think it was Reggie Wayne, I can't remember, but turns around and sprints towards the wide receiver and just gets between him and the ball and picks it off. And it was that kind of that kind of ability to just instinctively know what to do. I yeah, I just loved watching him. Yeah, th- there's definitely players that really excel in that game within the game. Because you know, that that's a play that you can't really draw up on paper unless you're really athletic enough to do it. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of in- instincts go with you know being great players. I mean, you know, for me, you know, watching Troy kind of have the the freedom to kind of blitz wherever he wanted, and, you know, wherever he wanted. I think it's a lot of like a Junior Seau was too. So you just have some players that just have, especially on defense, that have just great instincts for the ball. Yeah, and they, you know, when they're right time and time again, it's there's just kind of magic to to being able to do that. Um, and there's another there was another great one where um, I think it was the record setting. Uh, interception return at the time, but he picked off the Jets in in the end zone. And NFL Films has a great shot of it where they cut to, well, first of all, they're watching the Jets sideline, and uh, the Jets coach at the time is is saying it spots that Ed Reed knows what the play is going to be. So I think it was a, it was a halfback pass, and he's saying, "Don't throw it, don't throw it, Ed Reed, don't throw it." And of course, the halfback throws it. Ed Reed picks it off, and they cut to the Ravens sideline. And uh, Brian Billick is on the sideline going, no, Ed, no, Ed, because he doesn't want him to return it. You're like, you know, seven yards deep in the end zone, just taking me. Uh, and of course, Ed, Ed Reed said later, his view is always, these guys are offensive players. They can't tackle. I'm going to I'm going to run with the ball. I know they can't tackle me. So he starts to come out. And once he's got to about 20 yards out, they cut back to Billick again. And Billick has gone from no Ed to go Ed, go Ed. <laughs> watching him go down the field. So it's like a 107-yard interception return. But again, it's that ability to just do something that goes completely against the the percentage play, against the most the most sensible thing is just take a knee, accept the touchback, your offense has gotten the ball back. But he knew he could change the game and he could turn the game around, and he was just capable of doing that. Now, who do you think was one of the more underappreciated Ravens uh, since your time as a fan? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that um, certainly, well, I mean, Ravens fans have a, a degree of respect, but I don't think anyone realized quite what an important role Anquan Bolden was playing when he was there, to to the extent that after the Super Bowl, the team traded him to the 49ers thinking they would be fine. Um, and he was one of the big reasons why that team dropped off massively. Um, he had become... Flacco's safety blanket, essentially. Flacco knew that he could put the ball up there and Bolden was going to go up and get it and make something happen. Um, and he's, but I suppose he's he's a guy who's kind of known as, as being um, a pretty big name. I think that um, one of the guys who I think, I mean, he's, he's still there, um, is Anthony Levine, who I think is a real unsung hero on the Ravens. He's one of, one of my favorite Ravens because he's he's mostly on special teams and he's an absolute special teams genius. The uh, um, if you go back and watch the Week One uh, Browns fake punt from early this season that the the Ravens uh, forced a fumble when the kicker 
uh, ran with it and they recovered the fumble. If you watch that before the play, it's Anthony Levine who spots right away that the fake is coming and starts calling it out to the defense before it's even before it's even been snapped. Um, but he also, because Wink Martindale's defense is just crazy and people get inserted blitzing and doing all sorts of crazy stuff everywhere, he occasionally does get on as a sort of hybrid safety linebacker kind of guy. Um, so Anthony Levine's a guy that I, I have a lot of time for. And so, any do you follow in the UK any other professional league or minor league team aside from the NFL? Uh, in in American football or no, in the UK, like do you have any sort of professional league over there? Um, there's not a professional football league over here. There's, so there's obviously soccer is is huge, but um, there is there are UK teams. I mean, the the it was actually probably bigger for, for UK football teams in the 80s when there was well over 100 teams. There were loads of teams playing in the 80s. Um, and there's a lot of people who think that actually the World League, when the NFL launched the World League here, that took a lot of oxygen out of the UK game. Um, but there are teams here that, that do play on an amateur level, but it's not something that I know a, a lot about. And I'm assuming the same with, uh, is with like college and high school. There's not a lot of teams going on there. Not really. I mean, the kind of college sports thing isn't the same as it is in the States. So um, there was actually an American football team at my university, but um, it's pretty random as to whether universities have them or not. And there's not, there's not the same kind of organized um, college league sports thing here that there is in the US. Um, so it's and, and it's I mean, the NFL, because they are targeting the UK as, as a market, they do go into schools and teach kids American football. But it's um, uh, it's uh, what do you call it? Tag football or flag mm. football. Um, so they're kind of going in and teaching them the flag game. But it's that seems to be done on a kind of it's quite sporadic. I think it's more of a marketing exercise than a serious attempt to get the game going in schools. Um, but there's there's a little bit of that happening. Gotcha. Okay. Now, when it comes to pigskin books, tell me a little bit about uh, what inspired you to do this. Because obviously, you know, you must to do a website like this, you must really love books and love to read. So, can you kind of tell me what your thought process was when you were deciding to launch a website purely dedicated to football books? Sure. So, yeah, as you say, I am a, a big reader, and I've I've loved books really ever since I was a kid. So I, I used to have a, um, a a books blog, just a general books blog with uh, a bunch of friends that was called 26 Books. And the aim was, it was kind of a book club, but the only thing you had to do to join was commit to read 26 books in a year, which is one every two weeks, and then blog about your opinions of it. Uh, so we did that for a little while. But I've been into football books, as I say, as a kid, I would get some as a way of understanding the sport better. And then as I knew more, I would particularly look for books about the strategy of, of the sport and how that worked. Um, but it's it's hard to find them here. Most bookshops here don't stock them. And even on Amazon, which tries its kind of, you know, people who bought this also bought this thing. Uh, but that can be quite hit and miss with football books. So what I would do is because my wife's from the States and her family are in Maryland, when we would go over there, I would find a couple of bookshops nearby and I would just go in and basically buy all the football books that looked good and take them back home with me. 
And so I, I eventually reached a point where I thought, I wonder if anybody's got a site that explains which books you should read and which ones are worth paying attention to. And I looked around for it and nobody really had done it. Um, Chris Wesling from the Around the NFL podcast has a spreadsheet of of recommended books. Um, and he's known as being a, a, a football books guru. Um, but the spreadsheet really just links you through to Amazon. It doesn't tell you very much about them and what you're going to get. And so that's when I thought, actually, maybe I should just do it. I'll just kind of set it up myself. And it can be the kind of website I would have liked to have been around sort of 15 years ago when I was starting to build up a collection of books. And what, what year was this that you launched the website? Uh, so the website's been going two years now. Okay. And when you were reading uh, you know, the magazines growing up, did they ever have any sort of book review in there or was it purely just about you know what games were happening? That was purely about the games that were happening. So um, football books, I don't think they were really getting published here other than, like I say, the kind of the annual. So it would be, you know, the American football 1986. And it was just a review of the previous year. But um, but very few of the uh, football books were making it over here back then. And do you remember the football book that you first read? Uh, well, there would have been those those annuals. Um, mm-hmm would be ones that I read when I was a kid and the record and fact books that I would get. Um, and then I think after that, the first one, the one that kind of kicked off my current obsession would be Michael McCambridge's America's Game, which came mm-hmm. out, I think, in 2004. Yep. Um, and so that was when I thought, I should, I should read this because I really want to have a better understanding of the history. I feel like I've got a lot of gaps. So I read that and there's a great bibliographic essay in the back of that, which kind of points you to more reading. Uh, and that kind of kicked this whole current obsession off. Gotcha. Okay. Now, before we get into talking about some of our favorite football books, is there a rare gem that you're still trying to find that you haven't been able to get your hands on? And if so, what is it? Oh, that's a good question. There, I mean, there is actually a rare gem that I have got my hands on that I'm still trying to find for other people because other people keep getting in touch with me. Um, there's a book called um, Sleepers, Busts and Franchise Makers, uh, which came out in the early 80s and is about uh, it's about the NFL draft. And the copy I've got, which will probably fall apart if I try and open it again, it's, uh, it's in really, really bad shape. But it's the only one that I've ever seen for sale. I mean, it's quite it's there aren't that many football books these days that are hard to find because the Internet has made it possible to order a book from anywhere on the planet. So it's, you know, it's quite easy to track down most things. But this is the only book um, that I've ever seen on sale. It's the only one of those I've ever seen on sale. And I've had two or three people contact me through the site to say, do you know where I can find this book, Uh, including one guy who, who works for the Ravens, actually. Um, and got in touch with me saying he had contacted the author who doesn't have a copy. He'd asked around us some some former uh, GMs and stuff, and they don't have copies. Um, so that one's incredibly hard to find, and I was just lucky to get it when I did. But I'm still actually looking for others. Uh, and there's one from a, a similar era, one by a guy called Kevin Lamb, which is quarterbacks, nickelbacks, and other loose change, which is um, apparently kind of an early... Uh, take on the strategy book so it's really something that um, Paul Zimmerman kind of kicked off that whole trend with the thinking man's guide to to pro football but actually 
until the kind of late 80s, early 90s, there weren't loads of strategy books. Uh, and so from what I can gather, this one is one of the early ones, which I'm looking to find a copy of, but haven't yet. Wonderful. Okay, so I have a, a list of categories that I took down uh, from your website. And mm -hmm. I was thinking we could go through and talk about uh, some of our favorite books within those genres. Great. So I figured we could go, let's start off with the uh, granddaddy of them all. Can you tell me what your favorite football book is of all time? Oh, that's, it's, it's so hard to pick just one. I was thinking about this because I was thinking it's a question that you would probably ask. And I was trying to think which is the one that I could which is the one that I could keep returning to. I think one that I, because I like the strategy stuff so much, um, it's, I mean, it is impossible to pick just one, but I think I would say Ron Jaworski's The Games That Changed the Game. Mm. Um, because not only do I love the, the analysis of the strategy of that, it was one of those books that I've read that made me immediately want to go and seek out the, the film of the game to, to see the things that they were describing because they did such a great job of, of, of bringing it to life and putting you on the field. So it's, it's impossible to pick one, but I guess I would, I would go for that one. I, I was a big fan of that book too. I read it a few years ago, so I'd have to read it again, but I remember reading it and uh, I remember, you know, Jaws was talking about the Patriots uh, game plan against the St. Louis Rams in mm. Super Bowl 36. I think it was. And I think that's probably a Super Bowl that I've seen probably more than any other, just because it's fascinating to see how Belichick had so many different personnel groupings and so many different formations and really just was able to neutralize such a high powered offense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, his ability as a coach is, is extraordinary. And he's, he's got so few, uh, there are so few people like him in that ability to just completely rethink how they're going to present their team for a game. And I, so I find stories about Bel Belichick, I always find fascinating, but that, that game plan particularly, and then obviously the the classic one for the Giants versus the Bills, which gets mentioned in lots of books, but Belichick's ability to kind of, um, yeah, come up with something that's going to that's going to completely baffle the opposition is always fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So the book that I went with for this category was The League by David Harris. Oh, that's yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, th this was a book. I, I don't remember how I came across it, but I, somehow I found it online and I ordered it. Uh, I think in 2018. And that was the book that really got me interested in football as a narrative. You know, I was mm -hmm. always interested into the strategic part of the game and, you know, reading books that coaches had written and some player biographies. But this kind of opened up a whole universe within football that I knew existed, but I didn't know how in-depth it went. And the way that Harris was able to take all this information about the owners and put it into a 600-page book and not only put it in there, but also make it relevant to the greater essential theme about the deterioration of like the boardroom battles and the legal disputes and whatnot. I, I thought it was really masterfully done. And it's definitely one of the most ambitious books that I've ever read, period. And it's certainly my favorite football book, but I would definitely say it's one of my favorite books in general. Um, you know, it, it really just gave me so much to think about it as far as football goes more than just a game but actually as an institution in american culture yeah i i agree i mean i think it's an absolutely meticulously researched book and the amount of stuff that he had to go through to kind of dig up all of the, the little insights into how the teams are run and i think 
that's it's something that I find really interesting as a theme. It's certainly, uh, as I say, strategy stuff is is my favorite stuff. But I think beyond that, I'm really interested in this the the whole idea of the NFL as a business and that kind of tension between business and sport and culture more widely. Um, so Harris's book is is essential reading for that. I think I think Brand NFL by Michael Oriard is is an mm-hmm. important one for that as well. Um, and just books. I mean, it's actually it's it's a similar thing like Mark Leibovich's uh, Big Game. I mean, his is sort of slightly more. He he plays for laughs quite a lot rather than sort of digging into the research. But any of that stuff that says you know what's going on here is big business as well as. Um, as well as a cultural touchstone and a sporting touchstone. And very often the people making the money out of the business side will kind of use the the sports side and the cultural side as a distraction. Um, and I think Harris digs into that really in a really interesting way. Yeah, you know, the way he's able to show how a group of men really turned a sport into an industry, I think, was really fascinating to read. And I think in many ways it's kind of a, a book about a tragedy in a sense because – Obviously, Pete Rozelle, I think most people would acknowledge as the greatest commissioner, you know, and, and certainly in football, but, you know, definitely one of the greatest in all of sports. But this is almost a book in a way that feels like it's a challenge to his legacy. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it kind of makes it seem as if, you know, he, he was great. But I think in the end, his mission kind of deteriorated and not necessarily all because of his fault, but there were just challenges that he wasn't able to overcome and it kind of detracts from him in a, in a certain regard. It seems it's what Harris is getting at. Yeah. I think there is, there is some truth in that. I think that especially, uh, you know, this, this, the stuff around his battles with Al Davis and, and moving the wanting to move franchises. Um, there had been, I guess, this phase where the the sport had kind of, got onto a stable footing and and started to grow throughout the 50s. And it was kind of anchored um, by guys like Hallis, who were, you know, who always kind of put the over, excuse me, put the overall product um, above any individual team's needs. And it's, you know, this is about the sport and it's about the league and, and that's bigger than any of us. And I think there was a kind of change uh, of generations of owners through through the seventies and into the eighties, and that caused a tension for 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 Rizal. Um And as you say, he wasn't always able to to meet those challenges, um, which which I never think it kind of makes sense. I think if you look at people who are whether they're managers or or senior politicians or corporate leaders or or whatever it is, yeah. most people have a kind of time. And there comes a point where actually, for whatever reason, circumstances just get beyond them and they, you know, they, they're no longer able to um, to to meet every challenge, whether it's because the era has changed or because um, their skills are, are no longer sufficient or whatever it is. I mean, you know, his Roselle's kind of denial of the the drugs problem within the NFL was initially based on the idea of, you know, if we bring in testing and we we start talking about the problem, then that makes people think um, it's that might make people think it's worse than it is. So his reaction to it was as a PR man, which is obviously his background. Um, And that may have been a sensible response if it had just been something that would blow over and and disappear, but it didn't, it became worse. Um, And it got to a point where you had some teams that had big drugs problems 
off the field with you know particularly players taking cocaine but then you had the the steroids problem and and performance enhancing drugs on the field and eventually uh Rizal had to give in and kind of acknowledge okay we are going to test players we are going to make this um something that is is part of fair play and how we uphold the fairness of the league uh and that's an example of an era where an area where his i think his instincts stopped him from reacting as quickly as he should have and it's it's easy to look back at this era where most sports have got to grips with performance enhancing drugs it's easy to look back at this era and say yes that's what he should have done but it's it's an example of where he was kind of out of step with where things were going i think yeah and you i think his commissionership was just shy of 30 years so Mm. obviously there's there's going to be some things that are going to be looked upon and say hey you should have done this and that but ultimately yeah i I think he's a guy that kind of transformed the sport from being kind of a a rust belt game and really turn it into something that's really captivated you know american life in many ways so yeah it's it's definitely it's definitely a book i think that does it justice and i also think it does raise some interesting counter arguments too yeah and i think that's an important thing i think it's very easy for a lot of books to simply focus on the glory side of the game and and kind of tell you how great everybody involved was and what a good job they did and that's and there's a place for doing that but i think there is also a place for journalists coming in and actually analyzing the decisions and why they were made and you know i don't think i think Roselle's reg- legacy stands you know everything he mm-hmm. achieved w- was extraordinary but uh, you don't have to you don't have to think of him as perfect. You can look at, okay, well, this is an area where uh, circumstances got away from him or he was out of step with the changing times or whatever. And I think that provides you with a richer picture of what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And and the book, I think, was released in 1986. And a lot of people will say it doesn't hold up as well because the full title of the book is The League, The Rise and Decline of the NFL. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a lot of people, because I'm 25 years old, so I think a lot of people my age look at a title like that and think, what are you talking about? The NFL has never been stronger. But that wasn't the case in the mid-'80s. You know, There was a lot of doubt as to whether the NFL was going to keep up its success. You know, There was a lot of uh, fan bases that had just kind of grown weary of the constant legal battles and just the sort of media circus that had surrounded the negative aspects of the sport. Yeah, and I think that's what's fascinating about that. And it's part of what fascinates me about reading um, old books in general is that you, you're kind of reading the stance um, that people had at the time. And obviously, you know things that they don't because you know how, how the history played out. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier, the sleepers, busts and franchise makers, it ends with them discussing whether the draft will survive as a thing because they were writing at a time when there had been a series of court challenges by players uh, and the courts had actually ruled yeah the draft is basically unfair it's it's kind of anti-competitive and so they were saying well it might not last much longer it might be replaced by something completely different and obviously we know now almost 40 years after they were writing that the draft is now one of the big sporting events of the year, despite no sport actually being played. Um, it's bigger than it's ever been. But I think it's it's interesting to look back at those perspectives because they're always reminders that things don't have to turn out the way they have turned out. You know, it's kind of there, there are these turning points in history where different things could have happened. Definitely. Now, what are some of your favorite uh, player bios? Player bios is kind of 
it's kind of one of my weak areas, I think. I probably read fewer of these than most people, um, partly because I think, you know, every player who becomes a star at any stage pretty much has a book out mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and so a lot of them are kind of um, interchangeable. Um, but I think I think my absolute favorite is Dave Megacy's Out of Their League, mm-hmm. um, which is it's still an astonishing piece of writing. So I can't imagine what it must have been like when it came out in 1972 or whatever for a player to kind of say, you know, there's a much darker side to the game of football that nobody has spoken about before. Um, and to detail that the way he does and his, his description of some of the brutality of the sport. I mean, there's an amazing description where he talks about uh, trying to tackle Jim Brown and he ends up looking out of the ear hole of his helmet because Jim Brown has hit him so hard. And it's just this extraordinary sense of what a violent game it is to play. But then also there's stuff that uh, he he gets in trouble for protesting during the national anthem. Uh, he gets accused of being anti-patriotic by, uh, by fans and being accused of being a liberal because he's protesting against Vietnam. And so there's so much stuff where you think, wow, this, this is 50 years ago and it's exactly the same issues that are still going on in the game today. So that's, I mean, I think that's an extraordinary book. Yeah, and also when he's talking about uh, playing college football too, when he talks mm-hmm. about how, you know, kind of the administrators and the athletic directors kind of organize it to where you can only really do certain majors because you had to practice and the amount of you know money that's being paid under the table. So it, like you said, it's really fascinating to see that a lot of the issues within football uh, and on a broader cultural context that we had today were just as alive as, you know, 50 years ago as they are today. Yeah, definitely. And that side of, co- of of college football, particularly, again, it just sort of that just kind of went under the surface for a long time. And it was maybe again, sort of the 90s before people were really drawing attention to it in books. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, he was way ahead of his time in, in flagging that as well. Yeah, because uh, I'm reading Michael Oriard's uh, King Football right now. And oh, yeah. he's, he says in the beginning that the title is taken from a book that was published in 1932 named called King Football. And I don't remember the author of that, but that was essentially the same thing where he was writing about uh, in the 1930s how colleges had kind of sacrificed academic standards and integrity for favor of, you know, giving preferential treatment to players and in some cases, you know, time, taking advantage of the, of the collegiate players. So it's again, you know, and that's a book that's 80 years ago or, you know, 90 years ago. So it just shows that, you know, maybe some issues will always be uh, always persist. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, there's some of these themes that just come around time and again. Yeah. And so the book I chose for this one, and like you, this isn't really my strong suit, but I went with uh, They Call Me Assassin by Jack Tatum and Bill Kushner. Ah, okay. And this is a, I think it's a book that's interesting to read because. I think a lot of people use the word, you know, violent player a little too loosely, but, you know, Jack to me, when I watch him play is a guy that really is a violent player. You know, he, mm. he's very physical. He's very in your face. He is someone that's going to leave his mark. And w- when he's writing the book, a lot of what he's writing today, you know, obviously wouldn't fly in the game, but I also don't think, you know, it's something that a person would necessarily admit willingly. You know, he talks about how him and his uh, teammates, you know, particularly George Atkinson, had a contest throughout the season to see who they could knock out right. uh, and you know, they would have like a point system. So hearing that perspective and hearing just how candid he is about it, it just kind of gives you a glimpse into a physical time with one of the most physical teams in the Oakland Raiders. And, but also kind of going off the 
some things never change. He talks also about the brutality of the game, and he gives a couple um, suggestions to make it safer. And one of that was interesting was getting rid of zone coverage, which is really fascinating. Yeah, and that's fascinating because as a free safety, you figure that's where your bread and butter is. Why would you want to get rid of it? But his line of thinking is like, listen, when you have man-on-man, you know, I'm not going in for a tackle. I'm trying to keep up with him. And then he, he also suggests that uh, defenses move to a five-man defensive line. And he also talks about on kickoffs, you know, putting it at the 40-yard line, which I th- think right now it's at the 35. So he was ahead of his time on that. Uh, but just being able to get a glimpse, you know, into that time period from one of the most notorious players of that era, I think really is a, a good read. And his insights as to, you know, where the game was headed kind of, you know, foreshadows a lot of what's going to happen. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not one I've read actually. It's on it's on my very long list of books that I I want to get for my collection, but I haven't read it. Um, and it's I mean it's fascinating. Obviously, you could you could make it a rule of how many defensive players have to be on the line. I don't know how you would I don't know how you would outlaw zone coverage. Actually, forcing defensive backs to play a particular coverage seems to be a hard thing to throw a flag on. But um, it's, I mean, it's interesting, as you say, that this is an issue that at the time was 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 much less discussed than it is now. And now with concussion being such a big deal, I think we will see more of those kinds of rule changes over the next few years to, to make this the sport less violent. Yeah, I think if you were going to outlaw zone coverage, I think you would have to be a little bit more liberal with the um, holding before the pass penalties. Mm. And yeah, because yeah, I mean, the only way I could see it is if, you know, you have like an illegal formation where you have a, a defensive back that's lined up more than, say, five or six yards off the ball. Yeah. Um, yeah that would but sense. yeah, it, it would be it would be an interesting experiment to see. But I just think with the athleticism today of you know the offensive players, it would be a real challenge. Oh, it absolutely would. I mean, you know, trying to cover the, the current Chiefs purely in mind, <laughs> yeah. for example, would be, would be terrifying. Yeah. Now, what about your favorite business books? Um, so this is an area that I do like quite a lot. Like I say, after after the strategy books, I think this is maybe my next favorite area. Um, and the one that really kind of opened this up for me was Brand NFL by Michael Oriard. So that's mm-hmm. the one that um, that's the one I would pick, I think, and particularly because it was the first deep dive I'd read into. Uh, the labor negotiations and it was the thing that started me thinking oh yeah actually even though these players do mostly earn a lot of money they are taking a lot of risks physically and we should think about how they're rewarded and we should think about what they get and what's fair um so i think brand nfl by michael oriad would be my pick there and for mine i went with uh, the gray flannel pigskin movers and shakers in pro football Oh, wow. and, I, don't even, I don't even know that book. So that's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's a book by William Henry Paul, and I think it was published in 1974. And each mm-hmm. chapter uh, describes uh, a front office personnel member uh, across the NFL. And it really kind of gives you like a day, a sort of day in the life of what they do. You know, it gives you sort of the background, how they got into their position, and then talks about, you know, some of the things that they have to do throughout their career, throughout their day, some anecdotes. Like they have uh, Jack Horgan, who was the executive vice president of public relations for the Bills, mm-hmm. and he talks and it talks about how he has to you know communicate with fans and uh, the players and everything. But you know, in particular, he talks a lot about how his job was kind of to 
maybe maybe not part of his job, but something that he had a, a lot to do was kind of keep OJ calm during his first few years in Baltimore or um, in Buffalo rather. And he right. was saying that you know the first few years that OJ was in Buffalo, uh, you know the offense wasn't really built around him. They were trying to get him to block and catch the ball out of the flat, and he was getting frustrated and he wanted to leave. And Jack was kind of the one that calmed him down and kept him on a you know kept him level headed, and it actually turned out well in the end. And then, you know, for the Chiefs, there was a GM named Jack uh, Steedman, who was actually an accountant for Lamar Hunt's oil company. And then he came over to run the team as a GM whenever they won their Super Bowl in the uh, early 70s. Right. Okay. So it's a it's a good book that analyzes the uh, front office culture of the NFL at a time when you know the front office was only about 15 people. And he also has he also mentions he doesn't have his own chapter, but he mentions a guy named Dick Gordon who was actually an astronaut that became the vice pre- the executive vice president for the uh, Saints. So oh wow, that sounds, yeah, yeah, that sounds fascinating. I definitely need to get a copy of that. And um, and Jack Oregon is is great. He's one of the authors of um, the Other League, which is a really mm-hmm. really good book about about the AFL. And obviously Jack's son Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, was at the NFL, um, yeah, the Pro Football Hall of Fame for a long time and and wrote a, a really good history of the league last year. Now, going on to football history, this is kind of the most open-ended category, uh, but if you had to you know, pick some books within football history, whatever angle you want to take, what would they be? Well, I, I think you, you kind of have to pick America's Game, which um, I don't mean that to sound as grudging as it does. I mean, it's just it's just the definitive um, football history book, I think. So I think you, you can't talk about this as a category of books without America's game. I mean, it's, you know, not only is it meticulously researched and there's so much depth and detail in there, but also um, Michael McCambridge is such a fantastic writer and manages to bring this stuff to life and really take you inside a lot of these rooms or, you know, puts you on the sideline during a game or whatever. And it's, it's something that um, it's a subject that can easily be quite dry. And I find, you know, there's a lot of people working today who write quite important history books. You know, they'll go back and look at a forgotten team from the sixties or something and, and research everything about it and, and, and put the book out but they can be quite dry to read. You can feel like you're sort of having to work your way through sort of years and years of, of, of stats from how, how this guy did on the past or, you know, how they changed their running game or, or whatever it is. Um, and that's not the case with America's game at all. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating to read um, and just really comes to life. Yeah, it's very fluid throughout. And the way that he has such a vast history, because like w- early when we were talking about the league, you know, it's it's a book that probably spans a couple of decades. But this really goes into a much deeper or into, into a much broader context of football in terms of seeing it from the player's angle, from the angle of the owners, the AFL owners, you know, NFL films. So the, the way that he's able to take these multiple vantage points and kind of create this coherent idea of how football had kind of surpassed baseball and surpassed college football for that matter too, and becoming mm. something really into the hearts and minds of uh, you know Americans that just really grew passionate about the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, for this book, I, I went more with the evolution of football itself, and I went with um, Anatomy of a Game by David M. Nelson. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that I I find really fascinating because. There's only, a, I think, a handful of books that really chronicle the sport year by year and how the rule evolution kind of also complemented the evolution or 
you know, made possible the evolution of strategy. And this was published in 1991. So you can most certainly do a continuation of this book. Um, and then also there's a few other ones like Park H. Davis has the um, football, the intercollegiate game, which is a very detailed uh, dissection of football from, you know, the 1880s up until about the 1910s, maybe the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this book, I think, is very all-encompassing in talking about how, um, you know, the line of scrimmage laws were formed about the forward pass, about, you know, ineligible players downfield, about the decline of the kicking game, which was much prevalent in the 1880s up until the first decade of the 1900s. Uh, so I think it's definitely a book that, you know, kind of stands on its own as an official history of the rule evolution. Yeah, and I think that is an important aspect of the history of the NFL. I mean, as a you know, as a British fan, um, soccer is is notoriously resistant to rule changes. So there's been we have um, video replays now, uh, which were resisted for years and years and years and years, uh, and fans by and large hate them, absolutely hate them. Any kind of change to to the way football soccer has 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 always been played is is resisted um, passionately by by soccer fans, but the NFL has has grown to the state as it has by seeing what they're doing essentially as providing, you know, it's an entertainment product as a, as much as anything else. Um, and so we have to ensure that it stays entertaining and exciting and, and people get the best opportunity to, to show off these incredible talents. And so the game that we have now is, is radically different even from the game of the eighties really. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that in, in 20 or 20 or 30 years time, the game will look significantly different again and there'll be other rule changes. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting to see because I spent a lot of time on YouTube watching old games from, you know, as early as the early 70s up until, you know, the early 2000s. And just to see the kind of the progression of how offenses and defenses have kind of reacted to one another. Mm. You, know, you know, you you look at the split back formation that was used predominantly in the 70s and throughout the 80s and kind of how, you know, multiple tight ends and eye formation came in to the run and shoot and spreading the ball out to now having, you know, pistol offense, read options, um, RPOs. It's something that is really great on football's behalf that it's been able to kind of uh, evolve the game with its audience throughout the years. Yeah, and that back and forth is is also an important part of the story because it is this this, as you say, constantly the offense will come up with an innovation and the defense will find a way to stop it and 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 so on, backwards and forwards. And that's that's always been the thing that's really made me fascinated by the sport, I think. Absolutely. Now, what about the uh, embedded journalist trope? Um, so this is this is an interesting one because it's quite it is quite hard to to overlook Paper Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, which obviously is the, you know, George Plimpton kind of defined this as, a, as an entire concept. And that's a brilliantly written book and it's got so many great scenes in it. Um, but I think actually in terms of a favorite, um, Collision Low Crosses by Nicholas Davidoff is one that I just really, really enjoyed. And I found that I'm not I'm not particularly interested in the Jets at all, but I found myself absolutely uh, riveted by what was going on with that team. And he was able to, because of the way things had changed, I mean, obviously 
you know Plimpton was getting in the game and he was he was on the field during training camp. Um, and there's a, a difference in the way that reporters are handled in a much more professional organization. But Davidoff still gets very close to all these people and particularly to a lot of the coaches uh, and explains to you their thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And also that sense of the constant the constant slog that they're on to, to digest film and come up with a plan for the next week. And then suddenly, as you know, he thought he was, as, as so many of these writers have, have done, he thought he was going into a team that was going to make a Super Bowl run. Um, and that doesn't happen at all. Suddenly it's just, it's over. That's it, gone. Um, and so I really, really enjoyed that one. Yeah, and it seems those kind of books are uh, better whenever the team fails in a certain way. I think so. I think that does bring something to it that that you don't otherwise get. And I think it's it's interesting that the majority of them that you look at, um, you know, Three Bricks Shy of a Load, Next Man Up by John Feinstein, um, Collision Low Crossers, it, the writer usually does think that they, they've picked a team that's got a shot at the Super Bowl. Um, and so often it's not the case because obviously only one team in in the league is going to end up there. So the odds are it's not going to be the one that you're embedded with. But as you say, it brings this really interesting perspective to what it means to be part of a team. And, and I think that's something that Davidoff brings across really well, actually, because he talks about being a very unathletic kid when, when he was younger and obviously being very bookish and his time with the Jets makes him wish he'd been part of a team when he was younger. He suddenly sees the value of being part of a team and that that isn't diminished by the fact that, that this team ends up, um, I, I, I think they didn't even make the playoffs. They just, you know, they just kind of collapsed basically. Yeah. And speaking of the Jets, you know, there were two books that I really that popped up in my head whenever I saw the, the category. And one of them, which you know very well, is Dr. Z's The Last Season of Weeb Eubank. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is just such a fascinating book because Weeb is a, a coach that for the most part has been lost to history. You know, people will know him as the coach that upset, you know, the Baltimore Colts in uh, Super Bowl three. But I don't mm-hmm. think really a lot of people will know too much about him as a, as a coach or as a person. And uh, Dr. Z's book really just kind of takes you inside and really sees, you know, kind of Weeb's methods and how in certain regards it worked against them. You know, he, he was someone who was very reliant on aging veterans and didn't want to give a lot of exposure to young rookies. Um, you know, he had a, a stingy, a, a kind of a notoriety as a stingy negotiator. Um, and, and Zimmerman really does a good job of showing, you know, game by game, how everything kind of worked against Weeb. And a lot of it was out of his control, too. I mean, you know, the management for the Jets historically has prevented them from being really successful. And uh, that's mm. definitely on display in the book. Yeah. But if I, I think I would probably give Three Bricks Shy of a Load a little bit of an edge over that one because I do like how Roy Blunt Jr. kind of approaches the team from an outsider's perspective because when you when you see dr z or read his work you know you'll see this as a guy that knows football in and out so he's not going to give you a lot of his own interpersonal beliefs about the game or you know his observations if it doesn't really have to do with the game itself and with uh three books shy of a load i really like how blunt is kind of an outsider going in you know he talks a lot about the games but he also focus more on the philosophy of the game and, you know, the philosophy of Pittsburgh as a city and kind of how the team interacts with the city and the atmosphere that kind of cultivates from them finally being a winning team. 
And he even has like the, uh, he has a certain quote in there too that came, I think from Ray Mansfield, where he says, you know, pro football is not an open society. It's a society at war. And the colorful mm-hmm. language like that, I think really contributes to the overall power of the book. And even and it's fun too, because you know, he also brings up, I'm not sure if you remember this in the book where he talks about ways to make the game more fun. And he gives some recommendations about the center being eligible to catch a pass. And then he also talks about if you want to kick a field goal or an extra point, you have to have one scrimmage play, I think, on uh, each drive. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you can't really go wrong with that book. It is, it's a classic football book, not just a classic of, of, of the embedded journalist genre. So, yeah, you certainly can't go wrong with that. And this, the last season of, of Weeb Bank, as you say, is, is another classic. And I think what Paul Zimmerman's so good about there is, is picking at the, the humanity of, of Weeby Bank that mm-hmm. doesn't always come across when when people are writing about football. But, you know, he was the only head coach to win an NFL title, an AFL title and a Super Bowl. You know, literally nobody else did that. And as you say, he's been kind of forgotten by history. But I think that that book is a good um a good memorial to him it does it does really do him justice as as one of the sports greats and Zimmerman isn't afraid to show him as show his mean side or show him as being slightly ridiculous sometimes it's it's a really human portrait i think yeah. the, i mean the interesting thing about um three books shy of a load is that um that's a book where the coach is almost entirely absent he's just <laughs> he's, yeah. there's very little presence of chuck Noll there um which makes it interesting among that genre because very often the embedded the embedded journalist genre is kind of the coach is the sort of all-seeing mastermind of everything um but in three books shy of a load i mean chuck noll is is sort of mentioned in passing a couple of times but he, you don't really think of him as a character in that book yeah and it's interesting how most of the characters in that book are or most of the players in that book are linemen typically like i know ernie, mm. Hol- ernie holmes is pretty prevalent throughout the book uh dwight white so you, you don't get like a lot of the uh and brad you know bradshaw's mentioned here and there too but you don't really get like a lot of the star power that you think about when you think of the uh, 70s steelers yeah and it fits in with with what paul zimmerman always said which is that if you need quotes on a football game it's always the linemen that you go to because they're the they're the more cerebral more um more expressive ones yeah, definitely. And you know, when you're talking about humanity, especially with Weeb Eubank, I immediately think of the end of that book whenever they're in Weeb's uh, garage and he's going through his old uh, memorabilia. You know, he goes through a lot of his pictures from when he was playing football, his old letterman's jacket. Uh, he even goes to pulls out a short story that he wrote about a Purdue fullback whose name I can't remember. But it, and it just goes to show that, you know, when you see a coach on the sideline and when you see a player on the sideline, too, you know, there's so much more uh behind what you see on television you know there's a whole life there and a whole life within football and it just really makes you wonder about the football journey that they went through to get to where they are now yeah yeah i think you i I agree with you completely now uh you mentioned earlier that uh you know strategy was your favorite and i know you already mentioned uh ron jaworski's book so what are some other strategy books that you really take to um so i do i i really like the pro style by tom bennett which is um it's kind of an early attempt to explain strategy to to casual fans and it's a surprisingly deep book um particularly because in the one of the the appendixes one of the appendices is uh is 
a graphical guy, a sort of, um, I can't remember exactly what they call it. It's the sort of the graphical or um, a, a, a drawing guide to um, uh, to football. And they go through with these illustrations that essentially just show you how the formations have changed over time and how that that really illustrates strategy in a, in a very simple way that requires far fewer words than than most books. Um, he also has this amazing line about how no teams own a computer because they're too expensive, which I think is <laughs> just one of those amazing things where you look at how much things have changed in in such little time. Um, Blood, Blood, Sweat and Chalk by Tim Layden is a really interesting one where he kind of goes at, at the play level. So you've sort of, I see there as being sort of, when people want to to know what to read for from a strategy book's point of view, there's kind of three books that kind of take three levels of the game. So you've got um, you've got Blood, Sweat and Chalk, which is at a play level. It's, he looks at individual plays and how they work and how they've been developed. Then you have the games that change the game, which looks at games level, so how a particular strategy was employed and how it worked. And then Doug Farrar's Genius of Desperation, which looks at the sort of uh, much broader how history... Uh, how strategy has changed over history and how certain things go in and out of fashion uh, and how different people have kind of influenced the way things go. And I think um, Doug Farrar's book is interesting because it kind of makes clear that, like I was saying earlier, like just how how many of these historical moments turn on little events. So the the 49ers of the 50s were using a shotgun formation, um, but it was completely unsuccessful. And so it was just sort of buried for years. It was kind of forgotten about until somebody, I think it was maybe Tom Landry with the Cowboys, came back to it and started to win with it. And then other people go, okay, maybe that's an interesting idea. Um, and I think Doug really brings that point to life, this idea that there are certain there are certain things that just take off for reasons that you can't quite pinpoint. Uh, and very often it's just because somebody tried something and it worked, so other people imitate it. And And those three books kind of make that clear but as i say at different levels of the game whether you're looking at the play or the game plan or the overall kind of team strategy that stretches over a season yeah and i think too you know you see how some things will go out of style at one point and they won't work in a certain area but then as you mentioned with like tom landry it comes back um and, and works with great success i mean i, I think with the, the 49ers and the 50s i think they all were also using like a three quarterback rotation Mm. And it, it's it's a strange approach, and I don't think that's anything that will ever be you know replicated in today's game. But it it does make you marvel at how a lot of coaches back in the early days, you know, from the 1920s to the 1950s, were experimenting with a lot of formations and play types that you can see are kind of reappearing in today's game in some variation or another. Yeah, absolutely, and it's I think there are coaches who are specifically looking for that kind of stuff. I think. Bill Belichick certainly knows his um, his football history very well and is able to go back and find certain concepts. And um, and what the, the the Baltimore Ravens are doing with Lamar today echoes a lot of concepts from the, the 30s through to the 50s and kind of playing around with ideas like the single wing and so on. And obviously mm-hmm. those ideas are adapted for modern football, but they're not that different. They would be recognizable to coaches of the time, I think. Yeah, definitely. And for this book, you know, to me, 
uh, thinking man's guide to pro football is really what uh, stands out by Dr. Z to continue mm. that trend. And, yeah. you know, the way, the way he's able to break down individual positions, you know, even going along the offensive line, talking about, you know, the difference between the center from the left guard to the right guard, he really gives you the full breakdown and it's a great introduction. And a guy like him is always good to have because he always, any, whatever you may think you know about football, he comes in and tells you that you don't know as much as you know. And one thing that I don't remember what chapter it was, but I remember there was one part of the book when he was talking about uh, the Packers offense under Lombardi and how he said, he, you know, it's not as simple as you think, because especially in the passing game, a lot of those receivers have freedom uh, to change the routes on the fly. They, they run option routes. So mm-hmm. Bart Starr has to, you know, read the pre-snap defense and then the post-snap and then also read how his receivers are adjusting to it. So I thought that was really interesting about how he kind of takes – you know, popular conceptions and it kind of, you know, goes deeper and kind of either debunks or expands on it. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is, that is the book that really kicked off the whole idea of explaining strategy to, to, um, to ordinary fans, I think. And part of, because he was such a good writer, he was able to do it in a way that's engaging, but also it's, it's frequently really funny that book. Yeah. Um, there's the amazing story of the, uh, the jets tackling dummy, which had all these various spring, settings to it and they turned it up to maximum and knocked somebody unconscious <laughs> it's just this sort of hilarious kind of slapstick idea of, of what nfl training must have been like so he's got such a good ear for a funny story i think and it's the same the same with the last season of weeb Bank as well he's just his, his humor makes the stuff so readable yeah and all the funny stuff always has to happen with the jets yeah it yeah. does seem to be the case yeah now, what about uh, football and society? Um, it's an interesting one because it is one of those areas where there's a lot of stuff. It can go in a lot of different directions, I guess. I think the book I would pick is one called Scoreboard Baby by um, Ken Armstrong and Nick Perry, which is about the Washington Huskies in 2000 um, and a series of scandals that they were involved in. So a couple of players were accused of of sexual assault. Um, Another guy was involved in a robbery. Um, But what's what's more important than the actual details of the cases is is the way that they uncover uh, all of the, the corruption that was going on throughout the local society to because the team was considered so important. So there's a a guy who, um, I forget what he'd done, but he ends up in court and the judge gives him a sentence to be served after the football season. So, you know, even the judge is saying, we don't want to mess with the team. That's the important thing. Um, And it's it's a book that also talks about some some of the ridiculous courses that the players were being put on to, to give the impression that they were actually learning something um when in fact they were there purely to play football so there are certain certain i think mandarin is one of the courses where where the the tutor of the course is just passing everybody just waving everybody through uh so all the football players take it there's a big waiting list to take it so they uncover tons of of stuff about the corruption in in this team particularly but also in in college football more generally and for me you know, as a former journalist myself, it's an absolutely astonishing work of reporting. Like the amount of detail, 
they you know almost all of this stuff is pulled out of court records and and um various statements that they had to dredge through to assemble the story so it's 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 i really admired it as a piece of writing as well so it's got some you know some of the stuff that these players are accused of is horrifying uh and is the sort of thing that is still unfortunately plaguing a lot of sports and and teams today um but it's an absolutely extraordinary book i've never heard of it but i gotta add it to my list it actually sounds like another book that's on my list too called we won this game have you ever heard of that one Uh, no i don't know that one Uh, apparently that's about a journalist who followed a youth football team in miami for a season and basically talked about kind of the the corruption the culture that surrounds that Right. Which is, you know, really interesting because obviously, you know, it's a touchy subject, especially when you're talking about kids. But then when you get into like the nitty gritty and you see how much of a business youth football is down there, um, that to me kind of sounds like a, a similar vein of the book you're talking about. So I'll have to check those out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something there's a, a book called Not For Long by Dr. Robert Turner, who uh, he played in the NFL and the CFL and um he also played in the USFL as well, I think. Um, but he's now a sociology professor. Um, and he's written a fantastic book that's sort of ostensibly about the short careers NFL players have and 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 what happens to them afterwards. But he also looks at this sort of industrialization of youth football and and what the cost is for players of, of going through that. Um, and again, I think it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I don't think there's a there's not a contradiction between I think you can be a fan of football and love football, but also admit that there is a negative side to it. And that's something that we should try and understand and, and, and learn about as much as we can. Um, uh, and also do something about where it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book I chose for this one is called touchdown An American obsession. And it's a, a collection of essays that are published by uh, professors and it kind of looks at football from a multitude of standpoints at a cultural level. So it talks about, you know, the history of youth football. It talks about football in foreign countries and how it was developed, you know, what the relationship is like today with, you know, uh, the NFL or even the NCAA. Mm. Uh, it talks about the TV networks and the role that media plays in cultivating the image of football. So it, it provides a lot of great viewpoints that you don't necessarily hear a lot about in reading or you know in watching documentaries or anything like that it gives a lot of different standpoints and a lot of good history that isn't really told so that one is something i would definitely check out oh that's interesting because i actually added it to my wish list pretty recently um because the book that i've most recently reviewed uh is by a, a guy who's a professor in a, a University of Central Florida uh, called Richard Crepo, and NFL football is the book that he's, it's just been updated for 2020. Um, but in going through that and looking at his bibliography, I came across Touchdown, which I hadn't heard before. And so I just added it to my list uh, a few days ago. So I'm glad to hear that's an interesting one. I'll check that out. Yeah, definitely. And so the last category I have, I don't think I saw it on the website, but I'm interested. What is your favorite football fiction book? Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, it's not it isn't on the website, really, because um, uh, I've done it as a top five. I did a top five football fiction, Um, but it was one of those areas where I'm kind of aware that football fiction books exist, but I haven't really read tons of them. And I think, 
I mean, the, you know, the ones I listed on the list were things like A Fan's Notes by by Frederick Exley, which is commonly listed as a classic. North Dallas 40, Everybody's All-American, books like that. Um, I think if I was picking a personal favorite, there's it is it's one that I put on that top five, which is called Lost Empress by Sergio de la Pava. Um, and it's it's a book that's kind of split. So he's uh, Sergio de la Pava is a former attorney. Um, and he's very interested in the the um, unfairness in the justice, criminal justice system. So kind of half of the book is to do with criminal justice and these characters who end up in prison. And they're loosely connected to these people who are trying to run an indoor football franchise. So there's this family. Um, the woman in the book is the daughter of the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And... Uh, he dies and her brother inherits the Cowboys, even though he doesn't know anything about football. And she's a football obsessive. And she um, inherits a team called the Patterson Pork, uh, who are an indoor football franchise. And so she decides that she's going to get her revenge by making this indoor league bigger than the NFL. Um, and the story is just very, very funny because they come up with all of these ridiculous ideas to try and get attention for their league so one of them is that the um the game before the game the mascots have a fight so they stage a fight in the center of the field to see which mascot wins um they do all of these just ridiculous publicity stunts basically uh and it's it's just a very very funny book but there's a point part way through where he starts explaining why the three four defense isn't very good and it goes into this long depth about the three four defense doesn't work because the only way you can do it is if you have a Hall of Famer at a key position. So the Steelers were able to do that. The Giants were able to do that. Most teams can't rely on having a Hall of Famer uh, as the outside pass rusher. So you've got to go with a 4-3. Um, and I was reading it and thinking, that's actually a really good argument. And it's not something I expected to find halfway through somebody's novel. But um, it's a, yeah, that's, so that's an interesting book. That's the one I'd pick. And it's not one, I don't think it's a particularly well-known book. Yeah, I've never heard of it, but it sounds interesting. Uh, do, do you think that it's a good uh, book to be adapted for like a miniseries or a movie? I think it would be tough because it's so crazy. I don't know if you're familiar with David Foster Wallace, who wrote Infinite Jest and mm -hmm. um, things like that. It's 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 in a similar vein to him, and it's it's slightly it's a slightly surreal take on the real world so it happens in our world but in a slightly weird version of our world um and for long periods it's hard to figure out what on earth the plot is uh but it does all come together and 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 then has a, just a completely bizarre ending i don't know it would be interesting like in this era where you have amazon and netflix making quite niche stuff into into long series um it might be something somebody could adapt now, but it's certainly something, you know, sort of before the streaming era when series had to have much wider mainstream appeal. I don't think this would have had a chance because it's, it's slightly too weird. But actually, it might work as a sort of strange Amazon miniseries. Yeah, I think some books like that are definitely better left as just books because oftentimes you see the adaptation just doesn't do it justice. No, and it would be kind of hard to see. I mean, it would be kind of interesting to see this indoor football um, put onto the screen. But as I say, some of the ideas are so surreal. I don't quite know how they would actually do it. 
Yeah, and indoor football, it's actually weird because it's a world that hasn't been explored too heavily in uh, film and television or even really in books that much. I mean, even uh, even six-man football has, I think, more screen time with uh, Ryan Gosling's The Slaughter Rule. Yes, yeah, I think you're probably right. So for this one, I'm like you. I, I don't really have too many fiction books that come to mind for football. Uh, I know a fan's note is often – labeled as the best football fiction book but i haven't read that either mm-hmm. but one i actually read recently was called only a game by robert daly mm-hmm. and daly was actually a former public relations man for the new york giants back in the 50s when they had uh charlie Connerly and frank gifford so he writes about this aging halfback for a fictional nfl team so it takes place within the nfl universe but they're just uh, an anonymous team well they're called the big red but i don't think it specifies which town they're based in Right. Um, and, you know, he, he's in this very unhappy marriage and he meets this commercial model that's working for, uh, I think, uh, Pepsi doing promotions with the team. And, you know, they start an affair. And then basically you find out throughout the book, you know, kind of how he felt in many ways life has passed him by because he was always concerned about being the all American that everybody wanted him to be. You know, even going from being a marrying a woman that he didn't really love to, you know, being pressured by the owner to live a clean cut life. So it's it's a really good story. It's almost like a Mad Men story kind of set in the world of professional football in the 1960s. So I, I think that's a book that it's not very well known today, but I do think it does provide some interesting content for anybody that's interested in fiction and that, those kind of stories within the football universe. I've heard of this book, but I haven't read it or I don't own a copy. Um, but I know of it because it was in Sports Illustrated's uh, top 100 sports books. Um, and that's the first time I came across it. So it's kind of it is stuck on, as I say, this very long wish list that I have. It's on that list, but um, but I've never read it. Yeah, that's uh, the list always keeps growing, right? When it comes to yeah. books, it just never ends. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know when I'll ever get to the bottom of it, but still. Great. Now, but before I let you go, I just have one more question. And that is, if you were to write a football book, what would it be about? Um, so there's there's a few ideas that I've that I've had that I thought would be that I thought would be quite interesting. Um, I'd kind of like to read a book about cheating um, in, in football, um, because I think that there's there's some interesting stories to be told there particularly things like, you know, how Buddy Ryan would often sneak a 12th man onto the field in certain points in the game, for example, um, and had figured out ways to to kind of get away with it so it wasn't noticed. I think a book about cheating would be a really interesting one. Um, and I'm also curious about the process of just, I think this would be a book that's that's so niche, it would probably be of interest to, to me and a handful of other people. But the process of how a game is actually run by the coaches in, in, in the NFL, that, you know, the, I find the idea of um, how a play caller works really interesting, how these guys are all working together during the game as it unfolds. I mean, we talked earlier about how, there are these pauses in the action and it can seem if you don't know the sport it can seem like they're quite long pauses but they're not really there isn't a lot of time between plays and so i'm kind of fascinated as to how much is adjusted on the fly and we hear stories of this coach will say well 
you know, the analytics guy said it was worth going for this fourth down. And I just find I find myself thinking, how are these conversations happening in 30 seconds between plays? Like, you know, how is how is this all being communicated and who is deciding Okay, this is if this play fails, my next play is going to be a pass, and that that means I've got to get these guys ready to go in, um, and then I've got to watch what the defense is doing, and if they're doing this, then I'm going to do that. I think there's there's so much going on in such a small space of time. I would I would really like to read a book about how exactly all of this, all of these plates are kept spinning, basically. Wonderful. I hope that comes to fruition. I mean, you know, certainly I think it would be a niche topic, but I mean, like you said, you know, for real football fans who are fascinated with that part of it, it would definitely be good. And I think even for people who kind of are casual fans would look at that and say, wow, I didn't realize how much of it actually went into like these like small little breaks in between plays. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where um, it would, it would take some digging around and research to find out what the, whether the story is actually there. You know, maybe it's all, I mean, this, it's something I think that interests me particularly because I didn't grow up in the U S so, you know, I didn't play football at school. It wasn't played at college. I'm just not, I've, I've never been on a sideline. I don't really know how any of this stuff works. And I think it fascinates me um, in particular, but I, th- and I also think at some point somebody surely is going to write a book about football and cheating I think football and cheating is an interesting is an interesting thing also from just from a philosophical point of view. Like, is it okay? Is it bad? There's the common quote that we hear, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, which used to be a, a Raiders motto, apparently. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, you know, if you cheat in an NFL game, you're not breaking the law, but you're not supposed to do it either. But everyone kind of has everyone's line is somewhere slightly different as to, you know, what's acceptable when, when, when you can bend a rule, when you can break a rule and so on. And I find that a really interesting topic. And so w- would this only analyze cheating from the, the team perspective or were you trying to look at outside influences as well? I think predominantly from a team perspective. I mean, I think there's some, there's some sort of out of the outside influence. And, you know, we know that, that if you go back in history, there's been points where, um gamblers particularly have tried to influence players to 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 throw games or players have been gambling on games themselves but i think in the modern nfl everyone is well paid enough that nobody needs to to take a take a bribe to cheat i mean it's the sort of thing that um i have a friend who works for a betting company who tells me that there's certain sports like golf and tennis particularly where there's enough players who who don't make enough money that you can kind of pay them to to cheat in certain areas. Um, But I think the outside influence of cheating in the NFL is probably not that big, but I'm kind of interested in, particularly in the sort of premeditated cheating. Like I say, you know, um, Buddy Ryan would deliberately send send on a 12th player for certain plays. There's even recently with the Ravens, we're going to figure out that um, on a punt play, if you just hold everybody uh, and and run out there was it's a loophole that's now being closed but you know there's there's this interesting line between you know am i cheating or am i exploiting a loophole in the in the rules and what's the actual difference and you see something recently like i can't remember which game it was but there was a guy who you know twisted uh, another player's foot at the bottom of the pile it was was it a cowboys game recently can't remember what game it was, but um, and that annoyed a lot of people because it was a deliberate attempt to injure somebody. That seems like that's definitely over the line. 
shouldn't try and injure somebody on purpose. But then we have the whole Saints scandal a few years ago. Right. I think there's there's lots to untangle of kind of there's the sort of there's the mechanics of it. There's this cheating that goes on. If you have rules and it's possible to become rich and famous by doing a thing, then someone will always break the rules to try and get that fame and success. Um, so there's the mechanics of it, but then there's also the morality of it. Like, you know, what do we accept and what do we think is okay? Yeah. Well, and also too, you know, going back to, uh, you know, late sixties, early seventies, there was a lot of uh, coaches who thought that they were sending scouts to watch their practice. You know, they were disguised as, you know, fans or reporters or anything like that. Like I know George Allen was very paranoid about that to make mm-hmm. sure that no one was spying on their practices. So that kind of goes into a, a whole another aspect of it too. Cause it kind of also echoes the AFL NFL rivalry when you had uh, operation babysit where they had played. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, And there's an amazing story about Lombardi. I can't remember where I read it, but Lombardi was apparently so paranoid about practices being uh, spied on. At one point, he saw what he thought was like binocular reflections from from a tall building that overlooked practice. So he sent one of his minions to go and investigate, um, which sounds incredibly paranoid. But he was right. It was somebody with binoculars spying on practice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is just one of those things where you just think wow like what what are the chances that you would spot somebody the the guy with the binoculars must have thought he was he'd found the perfect location uh but no lombardi was eagle-eyed spotting everybody yeah well and it goes to show some of those some of those men who were just you know maybe a little overzealous and meticulous and even paranoid just happen to be the, the geniuses that really keep the game going yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's and you know, you can go back to the the Balachek stuff about the apparently videoing team signals and, mm-hmm. and how how much of an advantage does that actually give you? Is that I mean, he was asked by um by Robert Kraft, you know, like what was the advantage in filming the signals and Balachek apparently said maybe 1%. Um which sounds trivial and and Kraft apparently, you know, Kraft's story is that he said to him, "Well, then you're an idiot." But of course, we know that in in elite sport, it is all about those marginal gains. So maybe yeah. your one percent gain is is what gets you the extra win. Yeah, most certainly. Well, Shane, that's all I have for you today. I'm really happy you decided to join me today, and you know I love your website. I think everybody should check it out. And I really wish you the best of luck uh, with the website. And also, if you actually do go through with this book, I'll definitely be uh, be ordering that if you ever complete it. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been really good fun to talk to you. And thanks for your kind words about the site. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Bye.